0: Uh, Hey folks, uh, welcome back to Connecting Minds Podcast. Christian Jordanov here. Today we have uh, a returning guest, uh, uh, Matthew J. Palomary. We call him Mateo. Uh, Friends, I'm honored to consider myself his friend, and his friends call him Mateo. So we'll be calling him Mateo for the duration of this episode. And he's actually a returning guest for the third time on the podcast, which is actually a record. Uh, So for the new listeners very brief overview of who he is the the full bio will be in the description he's an author, editor shamanic explorer Uh, he's an award winning writer musician and sound healer Uh, and he has been studying shamanism all of his life Uh, he basically uh, just like he spent a ton of time with the indigenous peoples in the jungles, the mountains, the deserts of North, Central, and South America. And he's been studying this stuff for decades. And through his research into both the written word and the ancient beliefs of the sham- uh, of the shamans and shamanism, he has uncovered the heart of what a story really is and integrated into core dramatic concepts that also have their basis in shamanism. He's written, I believe, 17 books, right? So far.
1: Uh, the one you have is number 18 and uh, 19 and 20 are on the way. Jesus Christ. So he's written, <laughs> he's published
0: 18 books and they cover fiction, nonfiction. It's just a a, a tremendous portfolio of books. And um, his latest, so the one we're going to cover today in some depth is Holographic Cosmic Man, which is, Uh, Jesus Christ, it's an uh, amalgamation of quantum physics, mathematics, geometry, ancient texts, current research. Uh, He talks about uh, morphic fields, morphogenetic fields, you know, ancient architecture, pi, phi, beliefs, myths, astronomy, anthropology, human anatomy, brain structure, shamanism, of course, uh, neuroscience, neuropsychology, indigenous wisdom. Uh, Jesus Christ, neurophysiology, holography, neuroanatomy, neurocardiology, and cosmology, biology, and a, a number like a number of other things. If I keep going, I'm going to get tongue-tied and maybe some people's heads will explode. So, Matteo, thank you for joining us today, brother.
1: Thank you so much for having me back, Chris. I love being on your show. Thank you for coming back. Um, so let, let's uh
0: let's catch up a, a little bit. So you we we've, we haven't spoken in about a year and a half. Um, so you you published holographic cosmic man in I believe November last year. Can you just uh give us first of all for the listeners that don't know you maybe give a little bit about your background and can you tell us,
1: you know, what compelled you to write this particular book? Sure. Um, as, as you mentioned, I'm passionate about shamanism and have been studying it all of my life. And the original concept of this book came to me actually when I was in the jungle doing a shamanic plant diet uh, with ayahuasca and a number of other plants. I originally wrote a book called The Infinity Zone, and I wrote it with a tennis pro. We wrote it together. I actually wrote most of it. Um, I probably wrote 95% of it. But um, he paid me um, and, you know, supported me along with it. So energetically speaking, it was a good collaboration. But it's about perfect form and motion. But the idea for it has been really rattling around in my head for for, for many years. So I like to call Holographic Cosmic Man the infinity zone on steroids. And it, it ties in. It's a play on words. I think I invented a new word um holographic cosmic yeah and it's a play on words because there's the temple of anthropocosmic man in uh, luxor egypt and it's a very precise mathematical map of the human body and many years ago a, a frenchman by, by the name of schwaller de lubitz he spent like 12 years on site and three more years he spent about 15 years doing a full on mathematical analysis of the temple and everything in the temple is based on the golden mean, the divine proportion, um, every archway, every piece of art, every the placement, like there's temples within the temple, you know, there's temples to the eyes and, and, and all of that thing. And it's all a very precise mathematical map. And what they say is that it's not only a map of the human body, but it's also a map of the cosmos with the human body being the microcosm of the of the bigger picture but they say it's a map of the cosmos. So I've always been fascinated with that. And somewhere along the lines of my research, it struck me that um, the golden mean is actually the perfect uh, mathematical representation of a hologram um, and vice versa. And there are a number of elements. We'll get into as much as you want before you have to rein me in. But... um, (laughs) But it's, it's everywhere. Once you, it's like when somebody buys a new car, Hey, I got a new car. And then you look out and that's all you see on the road are new cars, right? You know, the car that you got, that's my car. Right. But before that, you didn't notice it. So I started to notice how prevalent it was in everything. And I decided to delve into it and the research uncovered more and more and more. So I I kept going with the, uh, the flow of it and following through. And, and as has happened with the best books; it ended up writing itself. Um, it's
0: it, it's it, it's long, it's pretty deep. How long were you researching and
1: writing the book? Would you say I probably spent um, about a year. I did. The research was spread out. Like I was working on another book, and I had the idea for this book, so. While I was browsing the internet and working on this other book, I'd find an article or a piece or something, and I would just throw it into the document. Mm. So the research was spread out. You know, it could have been spread out over a couple of years, but I mean, it wasn't consistent like nonstop. Um, it was a piece here, a piece there, and then sorting through all of it. So then the actual writing and the rest of it probably took about a year. Very cool. There's very
0: little. Like, I mean, to be honest, I I have not found one sentence that is filler and, you know a lot of books they have a they repeat you know and then they summarize and you know especially mm. obviously obviously it's a it's a non-fiction book um so you know now the the sort of latest not not latest but the the recent trend is telling stories and like uh like dumbing down a lot of technical concepts so people can understand them but in, in this case dude, jesus christ like i had to like really just shut off everything like in my in my psyche and just focus on this and try to uh, you know it's very very like I, 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 I and I, I mean this in the best way possible it's very dense you know mm-hmm. what I mean it's very very dense you've uh compressed uh like J- Jesus like I I got pains in my jaw t- uh just listing the fields and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, neuropsychology, human and that, all this stuff. So can you, can you tell us, let, let's start with the golden mean since, since we kind of picked that thread up. What, for, for, for like the ignorant among us, which I, I believe I don't really know this stuff in great depth, what is the golden mean and how does that, how, how, where do we find that in nature?
1: You know, it's almost more like where don't you find it in nature. Right. But so the golden mean, the golden cut, the divine proportion, is one point six one eight, and it's called phi, uh, phi, and it is everywhere in nature. and And if you take that golden mean, and you work it out, I'd have to show a, a picture of it, but you'll get the concept of it if you take it and keep doing it in a circle, uh, an expanding circle of a spiral. It actually follows the Fibonacci sequence. Um. I don't know for for your listeners, uh, your audience, um, the Fibonacci sequence basically goes like this. You t- start with zero and number one, and then you add one to the next number. So then there's one and two, so there's three. And then you add that to the previous number. So three plus two is five. Five plus three is eight. And it follows that sequence. And, and most plants, when they grow... They follow that Fibonacci sequence, and in a process it's called phyllotaxis. Phyllotaxis. Yeah, p h y l o t a x i s, mm-hmm. and it allows the plant as it grows, as each leaf comes out, following the Fibonacci sequence. It allows each leaf to get the maximum sunlight, so that it's not blocking it in, in the initial growth of the plant. Wow. So it follows that. If you it, um and then if you look, you can look at some really obvious ones like if you look at um the front of a sunflower. Mm-hmm. And you look inside there, you'll see this Fibonacci spirals. And if you count, you can see those numbers that I just told you. Mm. You can also see it in um, pine cones, um, Romanesque broccoli. I can go on and on and on. I mean, it's it's everywhere. The, the, a conch shell is one of the m- most uh, famous ones also. It, it follows that. Right. And like I was mentioning a little while ago about you get a new car and then suddenly, oh, you start, it's all you see is a new car. It's everywhere in nature. It's in flowers. Um, it's in different animals. It's in different things. And, it, and the human body is f- rife with it. If you look at the human body, and this, this comes back to the uh, Temple of Anthropocosmic Man a bit, our belly button mm-hmm. in our body is at 1.618. That point. And if you, if you think about it, the belly button is where you were connected to mom, yeah. where life, all your sustenance came from in the beginning when you start to form in the womb. And and, there are, there are, and I'm giving you just brief examples here, but there yeah. are numerous examples of it. So like this first segment of the figure finger to the next one, that is the golden mean. Those two segments to the next one are the golden mean. So even that starts to follow the Fibonacci spiral up the arm. It's all over the human face um, in the proportion of way uh, everything is split up. Um, it, it's everywhere throughout the body. It's everywhere throughout nature. And it goes infinitely outward. And in many respects, infinitely inward. So, uh, in the beginning of holographic man, which you probably got a headache over, I started off with quantum physics, because it it applies to quantum physics, and I went from quantum physics into nature, into the human body, out to the planet, out to the cosmos. I followed it like that way, because it's all uh, it's what they call nested. Um, it's all nested within each other in, in both directions. Um, there's another expression that they use instead of nested. Uh, there's the implicate order and the ex, ex, explicate order. And it goes that way and it follows that. And when you look at much of the way life evolves on the planet, you will see uh, the symmetry and the beauty of that. So that's why it's called the divine proportion. And it was a huge part of uh, ancient Egypt. God knows uh, how far back you know, there's a lot of controversy over when the pyramids were made and when the temple was made and this and that. And as in many cultures, when one culture dominates another culture, they try to destroy the roots of the original culture. Mm. You know, in ancient Egypt, uh, a new pharaoh would come and he would destroy the monuments to the old one and then make, make them his or put up his own monuments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is that. But the roots of this go back. And one of the other things I discovered among a million others is that mathematics is actually a universal language. Any one of us, you could speak Mongolian, I could speak Greek. I mean, it doesn't matter. Both of us, no matter what languages we may have um, to communicate, we understand proportion when we see it. It's a a major part of how the human brain works. So the proportion is everywhere. Even... um, if you look at the human, the shape of the human skull, it follows a Fibonacci spiral. If you look at um, hurricanes, um, many of the galaxies um, are follow the Fibonacci spiral. And you can just find it, the more you look, the more you will see it. And it's really a beautiful, wonderful thing. And in, in my humble opinion, it's it's the expression of divinity because there's a whole perfection to it.
0: I love that bro. All right, so um, actually w- one thing I wanted to ask you is uh, I was going to ask you later on. <laughs> I love, uh, so I I kind of <clears throat> I I, I for, for whatever reason I love um I love debating uh, I love getting into tangles with atheists uh, mm-hmm. because I I I obviously you know feel that they're wrong and I want to mm. see where they're coming from. But um, I, I often actually like the, the last episode I published, I, I was talking to the actually the last two episodes that the people I was uh, discussing stuff with, I brought this topic up. But today, as I was reading your book, I came across a passage. Let me just bring up the, my notes here. So very just uh, I'm, call, I'm, I'm citing the book now, guys. So nothing is a concept denoting the absence of something and is associated with nothingness the state of being nothing, the state of non-existence of anything, or the property of having nothing. This is how non-believing atheists characterize any conception of God, yet in the paradox of their denial, they're unequivocally announcing that they themselves are God as they have made the ultimate judgment call, claiming their throne at the center of their universe. From this perspective, if they cease to exist, then nothing else would exist which makes them a creator god who rules over everything that falls under their range of thought and perception and denies existence to any other higher intelligence that might exist outside of them. So basically I finally found like a way to shut them up, right? The atheists. Can you can you like uh, elaborate on on what you mean by that, bro? Yeah,
1: sure. You know, uh, that's one of my favorite arguments and one of my best friends is an atheist. And, and when I told him that, I confused the hell out of him. And he, and he told me just, uh, we were talking about this like a, a month ago. And he said to me, dude, you told that to me 20 years ago, and it still messes with my head. <laughs> so really, atheists are really agnostics. And agnostics are like, I'll believe it when I see it. Mm. And the reason, my friend still doesn't quite get this, but the reason most people call themselves atheists not all of them but most of them is because they they're rejecting organized religion. Mm. And I don't blame them. Mm. All that crap, right? Yeah. It's been repeated yeah. and and reinterpreted and and you know translated. It's not the real deal whereas in shamanism it's direct experience. It's not about what somebody else said. Yeah. So in the end this is one of my favorite terms and I stole it. I'm a writer. I, I I don't know what's original. I steal everything because I'm a writer, and I admit yeah. it, right? Yeah. But I but I give credit. So yeah. um, it, in the end, it all comes down to radical subjectivity. That's one of my favorite expressions. Now, you could say something to me. I may get offended. Oh, God, he, he doesn't like me, or he's envious of me, or wow, he really likes me, or he thinks I'm brilliant. Or he thinks I'm stupid. I, I have any number of interpretations that I can make from the, my perception that comes to me from the outside. Any number. So when you start to really work on this and you start growing in an awareness and you start to realize that how you interpret reality is the truth. And of course, as we all know, truth is subjective, which kind of proves my point in a way. It's subjective. It's subjective. So what do you make of it? How do you see it? So it's all in the interpretation. There can be tons of interpretations about what are you perceiving. And one of the things I've loved about shamanism and visionary experience is that your your perception gets turned around six ways from Sunday. You, ha- you don't know where you are half the time and you're in non-physical realms and this and that and you're you're having these experiences. But you learn to sort through them and you you start to realize that each quote-unquote reality or dimension that you're perceiving has a different set of rules. So visions are very close to dreaming. Visions and dreaming are similar to waking, but they have different things. I I can be in a dream and I can fly on a purple horse with pink polka dots and wonderful big feathery wings in the dream. And I'm enjoying myself. I'm not even questioning that I'm flying a horse on a flying horse with all these colors. But in, in quote-unquote waking consciousness, it's a different set of rules. So in, um, in indigenous cultures, so, well, in Western culture, we separate. There's, there's waking, there's sleeping, there's dreaming, and there's visions. Those are the primary modes of consciousness that, that we know of. But indigenous cultures, they don't separate them. They see it all as degrees, degrees of consciousness and aspects of consciousness, but they're all connected. So what goes on with them and what has happened to me over all the years of the shamanic studies and experiences that I've had, in one of my first most profound experiences in the jungle on the diet, my dreams and my visions crossed over into each other. I had a, uh, for lack of a better word, I had somewhat of a prophetic dream. And then the next night I went into a ceremony and thought what came to me in the dream really manifested big time in my visions Mm. to where I was actually in rapture. Wow. And the more I did it in the jungle, doing the 10 day dieta there, the lines between sleeping and waking and dream they all blur. It all blurs. So for me, the dreams started filtering into the visions, and the visions started filtering into the dreams. And then both of those two started uh, filtering into my everyday life. Wow. And my everyday life became more magical, um, less focused on materialism, so to speak, on, on you know what, what is real and what isn't. And it made my life more magical. And in the end, it gave me a greater freedom. I don't have any attachments. I'll qualify that I have my books. I love my books. I'm attached to my books like that. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I have a, I'm, I've been a drummer all of my life. So I have a drum set. I'm attached to that. But if I lost them all, I lost them all because it's all just like a dream anyway. And I'm not looking for more things. I don't want, I mean, gee, it'd be nice to have a new car and it'd be nice to have a new house, but, but those aren't what motivate me in life because I've realized that everything is temporary. -hmm. It's all transitory. Even different parts of my life now, they're they're like different realities that I've passed through, and all the rules have changed. And of course, as you grow and you do the work, your perception changes, and you start to see things um, that you didn't see before. And then you start to see things that other people don't see at all. And when I say see things, sometimes it's a feeling, sometimes it's a perception, sometimes it's an energy, but I can tell things from people when I meet them by their energy. And it's not, visual is part of it. Hearing what they have to say is part of it. A greater truth lies in what they do as opposed to what they say. But there's just this whole, you know, I know I'm sounding new agey here, but there's a whole vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I can sense the vibe. So then I I know uh, a good sense of what's happening uh, with people and how to deal with them and all that. Because I, I honestly believe that I think quite different from most people. And after 24 years in the jungle, if I don't think different from most people and I haven't learned anything, then you might as well just put me out of my misery because it's all been a waste of time, right? Yeah, man. So can I ask you, so did, did that,
0: when when what you were describing earlier, did that stay with you, that sort of uh, opening or that energetic change? Or did it kind of, because, you know, sometimes when you take uh, anti um, uh, uh medicines you can feel an opening, and then it, it kind of closes off again, and you you back to to daily life, you know. So, did that stay with you, or do you think is it with your work, with the medicines, and the you know the the teachers there that you've just are permanently permanently open your psyche? Do you have to uh, like? Do you like? Another thing I'm curious about is, do you still like you know take any substances or plant medicines like or you feel like after all your work with it you've just opened the floodgates and you're just buzzing
1: that's a great question um let me do it in in parts just a little bit here one of the things i'm always saying and i'm always preaching about is that in a visionary experience like that you may see something and have a revelation or an epiphany about something many, 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 many people have that experience and they think, oh, I've arrived, I've enlightened, I made it, nuh-uh. You've just been shown it for the first time. I I like what you said about it opens up and closes. If you see it and you experience it, you need to carry it on in your everyday life because you're going to get tested. Because you've seen it for the first time, does not mean you're enlightened. It means you've just seen it for the first time. And I often say that it's the, the time between the experiences are, are more important in many respects than the, the experiences themselves because then you're going to get practice. Let's say for argument's sake, like I, I I discover, oh man, I'm, I, I judge these people. Oh God, okay, I figured that out. And then suddenly two weeks later when you're not altered and you're in regular life, boom, that pops up. And of course, the judgment pops up because it's on autopilot mm. and the ego's, you know, been doing its thing. So it's on autopilot, right? And suddenly you get caught up in it. And if you're becoming aware and you're paying attention, you'll catch yourself and then you'll correct it. But that will happen numerous times. And just about the time you think you've made it and just about the time you think you've arrived is just about when you'll get your ass handed to you. Yeah. And you will get humbled because you have to keep it so... I always like to say that I'm in a constant state of integration, twenty-four-seven. If I never take anything again, I don't. I don't need to because, in, in another uh, play on words, I'm 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 constantly tripping all the time. <laughs> you know, so I got to a point where I wasn't. I was going to stop. I was like enough is enough. And there's an old saying from Alan Watts. He would say, um, uh, "You've you've gotten the message. You can hang up the phone now."
0: Yeah.
1: But right about the time I was ready to quit, I got pushed into more of a leadership position. And my primary mentor passed away. Um, He was 90. And I learned from him for for 24, 25 years. And then I realized the importance of carrying the tradition, or as I like to say, carrying the torch. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: So I got worked into uh, leading ceremonies. Now, I was leading ceremonies, God, 17 years ago, and then people started turning me into a guru, so I bailed, because we're all our own guru. I can help people, I can help direct them, I can help point them, I can counsel them, but I can't heal anybody, we only can heal ourselves. So... um because my mentors are passing and i am been turning into an old man, as we all are, uh, some of us are further along the path, you know, all my older mentors are, 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 are leaving the planet. So I feel a great responsibility because they gifted me with the knowledge and the experiences that I've had that really few people ever get to have. You know, I've been, now I've, I've been to the jungle numerous times. I've done 13 extended shamanic plant diets. Plus, I spent time with the Chipibo Indians. I spent time in Mexico, all that stuff you read about, all the places I've studied. I, yeah. I, I probably have a total of something like altogether, maybe seven months in the jungle, maybe a month and a half, two months in the Andes. I have worked with all the plant medicines up there, or all the ones I could find anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, I did the whole Huicho peyote uh, pilgrimage, peyote hunt, and all of that. I, I've done all those things. And most of the people who were involved, like I said, um, I'm getting older, they're all leaving. So I feel the great responsibility to pass on um, all of the experiences and the things that I've learned because they're gone. And if I don't pass it on, it's going to get lost.
0: Is so, that why uh, you're so prolific with writing the books as well? Do you with do do yeah. a sense of duty in a way?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, I'm obsessed. I'm an obsessive fool if you want to get to the core of it. Yeah. But I've been teaching for 35 years. And uh, I don't know if any of you, you may be, or, or the listeners are familiar with Ray Bradbury, uh, great science fiction writer. No, I'm not He that. wrote uh, The Martian Chronicles, Fahrenheit 451, The Illustrated Man. I was blessed to get to know him through the Writers' Conference, and he was one of my mentors among many. And I'm an old-school writer in terms of craft, and doing it and how to do it. And I started teaching at at a very young age. I I got asked to teach horror, fantasy, and science fiction at the Santa Barbara Writers' Conference. And I was the youngest workshop leader for 15 years. And I'm still, to this day, I'm pinching myself like, how did that happen, right? Because I wasn't wasn't Mm -hmm. intending to do that. But I got to be very good at it. So the whole process of writing and creativity uh, has been a big part of my life. And I've, you know, I've mentored hundreds of writers. A lot of them are doing a lot better than me commercially. Mm. Um, But um, it's the whole process of creativity. And the shamanism has dovetailed into it nicely. So that um, I have a book, uh, fantastic fiction with a pH. Yeah, And it's a shamanic approach to story structure. And it's based on my experience teaching at the conferences and learning from Ray Bradbury and a number of other big name, well-known, successful writers who became first mentors and then colleagues. And and I was happy to say that book, it got uh, first place in the International Book Awards for writing and publishing. Well, wow. And it was based on all the knowledge that th- those guys had given me. So um One of the things I've learned and I've worked really, really hard on that's been beaten into me is trying to say more with less. So even though Holographic Cosmic Man is quite complex in the beginning, but it lays the background. And as you continue on through the book, the concepts come together and it makes more and more sense um, and gets really clear toward the end. And I mean, that was my intention. And I have other people, uh, reviewers and uh, readers who have told me that's what happened and that's what I had hoped for. So part of it, which you said, and thank you for saying that about me being very concise about what I have to say, is that I had to get a lot of big scientific papers. And then I had I um, I don't want to say dumb it down, but that's the best way I can think about. it. I had to simplify yeah. it, you yeah. know, the average person, even though even now what you're reading is still complicated. I simplified it and made it as clear as I could because I wanted to get those concepts across and I've been uh, a big fan in the tradition of um, Rudolf Steiner. I don't know if you're familiar with Steiner or not. He started the Waldorf schools. I have all schools. his books. Was that? I have all, all of his books. Okay, I'm, so I'm, you're brilliant, you I, know, you I, get I, it. I, No,
0: No, no, I, I let me just caveat. I have all of his books, but I find them very difficult to read, so I'm struggling with a couple of them at the moment, but yeah, hmm. it's
1: uh, hard. Uh, a big reason for that is he was German. Mm-hmm. And so many of them are translated. Mm. So that adds a little, kind of a little twist to it. Mm-hmm. But one of the things he really worked on was um, merging science and spirituality. Mm-hmm. Carl Jung very much so, also. And then uh, I'm also a huge fan of Gurdjieff. Yeah, Gurdjieff. I, I
0: was gonna ask you some stuff about him, but yeah, we can, please continue.
1: He's He's, he's awesome. He's yeah. all about shamanism and he was another one he, he was a seeker of truth and he was all about um trying to integrate you know for lack of better words like scientific facts and spirituality so that's been my path that's gotten more and more focused and intense about merging those two and one of the things i'm worked on with that holographic cosmic man with all the in-depth complicated technical stuff is i'm i'm looking to win over the intellectuals and the atheists, mm-hmm. uh, if possible,
0: mm-hmm.
1: presenting it in a way with facts that they can't argue with because they're proven yeah. scientific facts. But there are a lot of gray areas within, and that gets into uh, perception and subjectivity. And even that, one of the reasons I started with quantum physics is the whole thing about observing a quantum event. You can't tell what's going to happen. Is it, is it a wave or a particle? The answer is yes, you know. As soon as you observe it, you change it. Yeah. And so I've always been very fascinated with that because it all has to do with subjectivity and interpretation.
0: All right, bro. Uh, I I'm I'm glad you brought up Gurdjieff, right? So I have I have um, Ospensky's book, The Fourth Mm. Way. Yeah. And so actually, I have a ton of really awesome books. Some some from kind of older. Uh, older writers, uh, you know, like uh, Steiner, uh, mm-hmm. lots of, lots of stuff. You know, like, you know the Bhagavad, the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishads, sure. a ton of stuff. Right. The what I'm finding is that I'm sure many other people, my age, younger, maybe even a bit older, are having this problem. Is the way these books are written in that more archaic style, dude? I've got like, um. I've got some seriously, some seriously good books here, like dozens and dozens of books that it's all on my bucket list to read. Mm-hmm. And in the morning, when I'm super fresh, I'll, I'll read something like the Cabalion or something like a bit more esoteric while I'm still fresh and able to, you know, concentrate. But I'm having serious trouble with Steiner or Spensky, so maybe can you can you give us a uh, kind of a crash course in who was Gurdjieff? What is he teaching now? I know something I just got off of Wikipedia there, just as I was looking at his sort of biography. So quoting um, Wikipedia, so Gurdjieff taught that most humans do not possess a unified consciousness and thus live their lives in a state of hypnotic waking sleep, quote unquote, but that it is possible to awaken to a higher state of consciousness and achieve full Human potential. So I don't, I don't even like. To me, I'm not okay. So from what I understand, a unified consciousness is when you're like reading a book or listening to somebody, and part of your awareness is inside. Is is that like? Am I on the right track? Or what What do you make of that? You are uh, you ready? This is
1: going to be a little long. Okay, you ready for me? Yeah, yeah. Fast, fa- fasten your seatbelt. Uh, I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> so Gurdjieff was. Um, Turkish and Armenian, but he's considered Russian. He was uh, uh, considered a Russian mystic, but he was Turkish and Armenian. And he was a seeker of truth. And everything that he has written and said in his whole life has been all about, in the end, about shamanism. He studied all religions, traveled to the East, traveled throughout Europe, um, survived through uh, a couple of wars. And he was a seeker of truth and he started developing things. Now, according to Gurdjieff, we come into the world as essence. And then um, we start off as essence, which is relatively clean. And then the first thing we do is emulate everybody around us in order to learn. We emulate, uh, we, we, you know, we, we copy our parents, our brothers, our sisters, our friends, all the people around us in order to learn and develop. So over time in this, in, in this mode, we're reflecting what's around us. So in this reflecting mode of taking on all the things that everybody um, is showing us, there are good things and bad things. There may be generational patterns that are unhealthy, but when you're raised up in the middle of it and that's what your parents and your family are doing, then you just fall into that because that's what it is. And that's what's the reality of, of, of where they are. So you come in as essence and you develop personality and personality is necessary to function in the world. The problem is we do such a good job of developing personality. And when I say personality, I also mean ego or egos. When we come into the world and we develop personality, I always like to say I'm a cast of thousands. Okay. We develop those strategies to cope in the world. Some are good, some are bad. The ones that are bad, that are socially unacceptable, get relegated to shadow, and we deny those aspects of who we are. So the path is to go from being personality driven back to being essence driven. But the boundary, uh, the impediments to finding that, has to do with overcoming the ego or egos or personalities because we create them. We are the creator gods and goddesses of the universe that we inhabit which is the same thing as the holographic cosmic man and the anthropocosmic man. We are the creators and we create these sub-personalities. So you go through life, this average day for a person and an average person, so to speak. They get up in the morning, they're having breakfast with their family. you know, Everything's great, blah, blah, the kids, I love my wife, blah, blah, blah. And then they get in the car and they drive to work. Well, they may be a total maniac when they're driving to work. They may, I'm a kid, Right? Totally psycho. And then, of course, they get to work. And then maybe they're afraid of their boss. So maybe they go from being a psycho to being like, oh my God, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to upset the boss and this and that. And they become like timid. And then suddenly the beautiful woman in work walks by and then suddenly they want that woman. Well, then now they're, they're like, oh, I want that, right? So, and, and uh, Gurdjieff says this in his own way, but we are multiple eyes. And some of the worst ones can take over. One of the things I've observed that I love to see and observe, not that I love it, I actually hate it, but I mean, it's fascinating, is you'll see people get drunk. And they'll turn into total idiots. And then they'll wake up in the morning and they don't remember what they did. Well, the reason that happens, and this is, alcohol is the worst one. It happens with other things too. But they do that. And the alcohol lowers their inhibitions, and then the shadow comes out, and it does all these things. And of course, nobody wants to recognize their shadow. So one of the things that the subpersonalities and the shadow does is it recognizes itself in other people, and then it projects itself onto them and judges them so that you don't see it within yourself. And it's a self-defense mechanism because we created all these sub-personalities in order to function and cope. So most of us go through our lives working in that way, changing from, as Gurdjieff says, multiple eyes. And you can watch people, if you watch people really closely, going through different experiences. And you can actually watch the expressions on their face and change to different people. Sometimes you can do it, you know, 20 times in a minute. Yeah, yeah. Uh, different emotions come up. Uh, you know, I'm angry. Uh, I'm hungry. Uh, I'm hurt. I'm horny. Um, whatever it may be, they all come up. And when they take over, you think here I am and this is me and this is what I want. But in reality, it's not the real you. It's the personality that comes out to deal with that particular situation. Uh, one of the things I've noticed about myself, among other things, is um, how much I use humor. Mm when I meet people or I get in uncomfortable situations, sometimes I've been in some very intense situations where everybody's freaking out. And then the first thing I do is crack a joke,
0: yeah, right?
1: Yeah. And then everybody chills out and they relax. And and it's my way of reminding them, Hey, you know what? It's not that serious. Um, lighten up. You know, yeah. I had a guy get mad at me one time in a shamanic ceremony because I was making some jokes and he's like, Whoa, what are you doing? This is serious work. You're disrespectful. And <laughs> I'm like, dude, you need to chill out. You need to quit taking yourself so seriously. And if you study American Indian spirituality and shamanism, they have um, Coyote. Coyote is the trickster. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, Great teacher, right? It helps you. And then, you know, I'm getting a little bit off track, but they would have uh, the Hayokas, which are the clowns. And their job was to follow the warriors around and make fun of them. They would cross-dress. They would walk backwards. They would do all kinds of goofy stuff to make fun of the warriors so that they wouldn't take themselves so seriously.
0: Interesting.
1: And in medieval oh, times.
0: Yes, I was just going to say the jesters in medieval times. Exactly. Time you're right. Yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's, that's right. See, you're <laughs> on tra- track, bro, because that's right where I was going. Court jesters, wow. that was their job.
0: To, so, to, so the the royals wouldn't take themselves so seriously. They, they wouldn't yes. let their ego in, inflate too much.
1: Yeah, it was, wow. a, it was a balancing act because you need to learn. You need to learn to see those parts of yourself and you need to learn to accept them and forgive them if that's the case. Now, an interesting thing happens when you find out something within yourself. In fact, I call this my time travel theory. Maybe, maybe 40 years ago, I got in a fight with a guy who was a total jerk, and so I've gone through my life like, yeah, I got in a fight with that jerk. And I sure showed him, blah, blah, blah. And then suddenly in all of my spirituality or my surges or whatever, I suddenly realize, guess what? I was the jerk. And we were both the jerks. But I was the jerk. And that fight that we got into was a co-creation. So if I go back and I really see that realization and embrace it, then I realize my part in the co-creation and I release it and I forgive that person. And then in everyday now life, I no longer have that creation. And all the energy that I had all those years that was psychically storing that has become available to me. So my perception can widen. So then I could be going through my life and uh, see someone who reminds me of that person where all my life I judged them Now I see them and I go, oh my God, I'm looking at myself, you know, even two years ago or two weeks ago for that matter, right? I'm seeing myself. And then instead of having judgment, I have compassion. So, compassion is the gift that you get from facing that within yourself. And that within yourself, which is unacceptable, is the shadow. So, it's about integrating the shadow. And the more that you integrate the shadow, the more you become the single eye, that um, Gurdjieff talked about, but it's it's fluid. So I can get really really deep. I won't get into the complexity of this, but there's there's a few more things apart it. Um, it it just goes down more and more. It gets more diffuse and everything. But um, according to Gurdjieff and according to the shamanic studies that I've done, we have three energetic bodies. We have the emotional intellectual and moving now in inca and pre-inca cultures they had the three worlds they had the upper world the middle world and the lower world the upper world sky pacha is represented by the condor and the color rose which is love the middle world is power which is represented by the jaguar or the puma and that's an electric blue and the lower world is a serpent represented by the color gold, which is wisdom. So it's love, power, and wisdom, truth, love, and energy. The idea is to, um, as I like to say, the idea is to get the whole band singing the same tune. So I'm making this up, but let's say if I'm intellectually centered, I lead with my intellect um, at the detriment of the other two energies. So somebody could say something, and i can think about it and then i can get upset and then i can get so mad i hit him yeah so what did i just do i went from intellectual to emotional to moving maybe somebody says something and i pop off and then i hit him and then i think about it and then i feel really bad at what i just did so then i've gone from moving to intellectual to emotional it it varies but we always we generally have One, we lean on more at the expense of the other two. Great sports people, uh, great athletes are moving centered. Great thinkers are intellectually centered. Great lovers are are heart centered, you know, emotionally centered, right? Right. So this is ongoing and it's fluid and you you don't just, you never arrive. You never, ever arrive. Anybody who tells you that they're enlightened, run because it, it doesn't happen. You get better, you get more aware, but one of the beauties of it is that it's infinite. Yeah. So if you can learn and get to yourself to a point where you're responding with all three at once, then you're in that one eye that Gurdjieff mentioned. And all the other ones, he called them, you know, he, maybe he had an expression, just a mechanical man or a mindless man or an unthinking man. Because it's all those sub-personalities that take over and they're on autopilot. So most people have no awareness that they're even doing that. They think that it's them. So the idea is to get them all together. And when you're doing some of the work I've done, um, when you're focusing in on that, you'll get to see this ultraviolet electric color, which is the combination of all three. And that's where you're centered. And when you're in that place, if you're in that place, and it gets challenged constantly, but when you're in that place, you can be faced with intense situations and and have a balanced response and don't go flying off the handle about this or that or the other thing. But it's it's human nature. We created the subpersonalities and they're on autopilot. So in the end, is sort of to sum up this little part of our discussion, Uh, Of course, I'll answer more questions. But um, in the end, you're looking to be centered. You'll find yourself going into the eye of the storm. What happens in the eye of the storm? Mm -hmm. Nothing. So you move through these things and you become more and more aware. And you move from being uh, head-centered to heart-centered. That's the real path going back to being heart centered and heart centered is connected with the feminine and it's tied in with intuition, which is superior to logic and intuition. You can have 27 things in your mind and suddenly you'll get an epiphany. Boom. And you will realize that it's all this one thing and you get this flash of insight, right? Yeah. That doesn't happen with logic. Logic plods along, but it's intuition (laughs) that gets the bigger picture. You know, logic is all ones and zeros and and this and that, and, you know, yes or no. Um, There's that whole sort of… then, uh, else. (laughs) Yeah. You know, dichotomy, duality, right? Whereas intuition really grasps it. So the more you become heart-centered, the more you become centered. And um, this last little piece I mentioned about the temple of anthropocosmic man and the human body. So in shamanism, the heart is the sun which is the center of our universe. And going back to the anthropocosmic man, if you look at the sun as the center and the life giver of us, and then like the lungs and the kidneys and the liver, those are like all the planets. So in shamanism, the heart that is within us is connected to the sun at the center of our solar system. And that is connected to a bigger sun, to a bigger sun, to a bigger sun, all the way back to source. And if you think about the sun, and shamanism shamanism' is all about energy, and the sun gives its energy unconditionally and if we did not have the sun giving its energy unconditionally, we would not exist as we know it. so there's a beautiful uh, quote from uh, I, I I get mixed up one way or the other. it's either Hafiz or Hafez excuse me um fourteenth century mystic he says. Even after all this time, the sun never once says to the earth, You owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. The other final little piece of that is that if you think about everything being energy and you think about different densities of energy, the sun is made up of the two lightest, fastest moving elements in the periodic table of elements hydrogen and helium. So, in terms of spirit into matter, or however you want to call it, the highest frequencies of hydrogen and helium, those are the ones that give us light from the sun. And that, our heart, through, like I said, you know, it's represented in the temple and all that, it's connected all the way back to source. That is the real path. And it's not easy. Growth is not easy. Growth is painful. Growth is not fun. Yeah. And most people are afraid to, to face the darkness. But if you can get through it, The benefits are amazing. Um, One Mm more little thing and then I'll stop and let you go.
0: (laughs) No, please, please, please.
1: What they say in the jungle, and I've been through some real hells in the jungle and some heavens too. But what they say in the jungle is that all of the discomfort that you go through is what you need to do to prove that you are worthy of the gift of the knowledge that the plants have to give you. You have to prove it. And when you do this work, and 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 Jung and Gurdjieff, they they're they're really in line with this. You need to face the dark and accept those parts of yourself that you have rejected, because you've abandoned your creations as a creator, God or goddess. You've abandoned your creations, and we come into the world as it is with an abandonment wound. I can go off on that too, but I I can stop here unless you want me to go. I don't want to
0: yeah, want to give I, you a chance no um actually th- th- that is kind of where I- I'd like to take it is and I think we may have talked about it on a previous episode probably but um it's always worth revisiting because there's so many layers to this even like I feel like I've done in the last three four years I've done a lot of shadow work a lot of internal work mm-hmm. but like you said you never arrive there's always some some shit that you that bubbles up that you haven't dealt with or some other conflicts that arise that you know you can pinpoint to some other trauma or something else but at the on the other side of things it's like accepting the isness of it though it is what it is so you know we are imperfect beings and if we are able to accept those uh aspects of ourselves that, We think we uh, label or judge as negative. Maybe that is a a positive step to take that we can live in. You know, uh, I guess more peace with ourselves. What kind of? What's your What's your perspective on that?
1: All right. So I was going there anyway. So now I'm going to go a little further because I love your questions too, man. I just love your questions. So um, we come into the world with an abandonment wound. Um, You're probably familiar, or maybe your listeners are familiar with the work of Stanislaus Graf.
0: Mm,
1: For sure. sure. And the perinatal matrices. Yes. So in a nutshell, there are four perinatal matrices. In the first one, we're in the womb. We're at one with mom. All our needs are met, and everything is blissful and expansive. It's beautiful. And then one day, all of a sudden, the first contraction hits. And your wonderfully expansive world that you've only known so far collapses with that first contraction. And your wonderfully blissful, pure environment gets polluted with hormones and all these other things. Suddenly, your blissfully expansive world is threatening. That's the second perinatal matrix. The third one, you get squeezed into the birth canal which is even worse. You're suddenly in the exact opposite direction from being expansive to crush down to unimaginable, fearful, traumatic horror. And then, of course, the fourth one, you get spit out into the world. And usually the first thing that happens is you get slapped in the ass, right? Yeah. And here you are. So we come into the world with that abandonment wound. And, and 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 we're abandoned, and all of these things emotionally go back to these four core processes. Now, if you think about it in a holographic manner, one of the things about a hologram, among a million others, is that if you take a hologram and you cut it up into a bunch of smaller pieces, the entire image is w- within each of the smaller pieces. Right? It's, it's so so you know everything. Everything is nowhere, and nowhere is everything right i mean it, it it's all there at the same time so when when you uh, come in in that way and you have all these pieces you've just been abandoned when you came into the world and then you create personalities and they serve you they're dedicated they're cunning even if it gets really intense they'll they'll actually kill you um Or make you kill yourself because they're in fear of losing their existence because you think that that's what you are, but you're not. Those are your creations. But anyway, you go through your life and you emulate and copy all these people to learn and develop these personalities. And then you do the judgment thing where you see it in other people and you judge them so you don't see it in yourself. The point is you come into this world abandoned, and then you create all these subpersonalities, and then you abandon them, right? And you deny them, and you, and then that becomes your shadow. And the more you deny it, the worse it gets, and the more it will try to come out every chance it gets. I mean, how many times have there been, you know, crimes of passion? Or you know, why did you murder that girl? I don't know what got into me, right? Um, all of those things come from the abandonment of those aspects that you have created. So you need to um, work together to make it all come together so you are uh, responding in a unified way um, and owning those parts of yourself, good, bad, and indifferent. So you see where you come in abandoned, you make all these creations, you abandon them. You see where it splinters and gets smaller and smaller, and you see where the the, the microcosm is in the macrocosm, mm-hmm. which is what a hologram does.
0: Yeah.
1: So, oops, sorry. So, there's a good model for that uh, to follow. Um, so, go ahead. Just try,
0: there's so many directions we could we could. Uh, oh, go dude, here. I'll go
1: all day. You know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: I'm just thinking. So, so, um, so, okay. We know that psychedelics is one way to face ourselves, face the shadow, or at least, at least bring it up. We can then choose to ignore it because I know a lot of people can take psychedelics just for the the buzz, which yeah. is a little bit wasteful. But you know, you you can't judge people for. It's better than doing other things, right? Um, you know, watching TV or whatever else. Yeah. So, what what um, what intentional ways I suppose other than psychedelics can, can people use to, you know, do shadow work with that that you you know that
1: you know of or would recommend? You, God, I just so love your questions, dude. So um, that's really that's a great question. Um, I worked with a personal coach for five or six years, very expensive, and everybody that she worked with who was trying ayahuasca, she told all of them, don't stop, don't do it, mm-hmm. except me. She encouraged me to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. And I struggled with what I learned from her with what I was doing with ayahuasca when it took me four or five years to really pull it all together. And suddenly I realized it's all the same process. They're just different approaches. Right. So psychedelics are wonderful tools if used properly and respectfully to discover those parts of yourself because it stirs up all of the stuff that's hidden down there within the subconscious and it and it comes out. But um, I tell this a lot. Um, it's not for everybody. Some people don't need it. Some people can't handle it. And you can do the work without it. And one of the main things you can do, it's all about awareness. And awareness is all about paying attention and being focused on the moment. Because in the end, the moment is all we really have. So if you um, are paying attention like that and you, um, watching the world around you, you'll come to realize that everybody around you in your life reflects an aspect of who you are. So anything that anybody does that drives you nuts. Somebody does something and you just want to wring their neck. That's your shadow. But you need to be able to see it. You need to be able to recognize it. And then you have to own it and accept it. And that comes back to the whole thing I was talking about earlier about gaining compassion by going through that process. But if you're very observant, you will see that. And if you continue doing the work and you continue on the path in that way by paying attention, a lot of the people in your life will fall away. Hmm. And new people will come into your life. And I believe the reason for that is because you're changing your energetic. You're you're changing, you know, the frequency that you're at. It's like I was saying earlier, when 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 you get up there and you raise yourself up in frequency and awareness and you start to see things differently. Some people in your life will just no longer be compatible.
0: Yeah.
1: New people will come in that match your energy and you will resonate with the new perception of energy. And and just really briefly, um, more for the listeners than anything else, there's the whole concept of resonance. So what happens is um, back in more so in the olden days, so to speak, a radio station will transmit their show at a particular frequency, whatever it is, AM or FM. When you tune that dial on your radio to that same frequency, you get the show out of nowhere. It's in the air. And when you tune to that same frequency, that when those frequencies match, that's called a resonant frequency. And you're resonating with that signal. So when your energetic, personal energetic changes, your frequency changes, and it starts tapping into other resonant frequencies, and if you're really working on expanding your awareness and and rising up, so to speak, then those kind of people will be attracted to you,
0: Mm.
1: and the other ones will fall away. But another little interesting thing happens is that subconsciously, your shadow will also draw the dark to you. It's a subconscious thing but it will recognize the dark and the others and you may be drawn to that and you have to sort that out. But an interesting thing happens is the more that you uh, go along the path and the more you grow like that, you gain uh, greater clarity and you reach new levels. And When you reach a new level, you get a whole new set of problems. Yeah. And you get a whole new greater responsibility because if you've raised your frequency, now you're responsible for that, that greater level of things that you know. Now you know what you didn't know before, so there's no excuses because you know.
0: Yeah.
1: In shamanism, it's called the power path, and you become a man or a woman of power. Or in the words of, of Carlos Castaneda, a man of knowledge, you become that. But when you know that, you can't go back to the old ways because you know better. And if you do go back, the consequences are greater because you know. So uh, last little piece of this part, um, you have, um, how can I put this? You have levels of consciousness. So like right now, we're considered to be in three-dimensional reality. But if you think about pure dimensionality, geometry and a lot of this this actually comes from Steiner.
0: Mm.
1: a point has no dimension. First thing you do with a point, if you move it, you have a line.
0: yeah
1: a line is the first dimension. Mm-hmm. But guess what? If you exist in the first dimension, then all you see are points. yeah you take that line, And you move that line, and then you have a plane, which is the second dimension. If you live within the second dimension, within it, all you see are lines. If you take that plane and you move it that way, and you have a cube, third dimension. If you live within the third dimension, all you see are two dimensions, all you see are planes. So, what that means is that we are actually four-dimensional beings. shee bro. We're four-dimensional beings. And if you look at a lot of the stuff that's going around these days, New Age or whatever, in in the Hopi tradition, they say we're coming into the fifth world. Mm. In other traditions, they say we're coming into the fifth dimension. Mm. And the fifth dimension... If you think about all this dimensionality and expansion that I'm talking about, it all has to do with movement, so time as we know it is movement, yeah, so the fifth dimension has to do with time, and then you start getting into multi-dimensionality and all those things, and those are some of the things I've experienced on ayahuasca and other people have experienced on d m t and other substances where they they have this different perception
0: but it's different.
1: So we're actually four-dimensional beings aspiring to the fifth dimension. And there comes a point where you raise up where suddenly you're perceiving in a different way. You don't look at the world the same way anymore. You see it from this other perspective. And as I mentioned, you have to be in the dimension above the one you're perceiving in. So greater responsibility comes as you go up. And again, it's infinite. Who knows? (laughs) <laughs> Sixty quadrillion dimensions, right? That you you, you can't on put on a limit on
0: it until you merge with Source.
1: You head toward Source. You become heart centered, and you resonate yeah. with Source. And you become. It's interesting because you you sort of surrender yourself to Source, and you think that you're giving up your individuality, but you are actually, by surrendering to Source, gaining more of it. Mm. One of the things I've done this is, I don't say this a lot, but I'm going to say it now for your benefit and the benefit of your listeners. But when I've been doing shamanic healings and medicine ceremonies, I found myself, I did some research, and I found a tuning fork. And the tuning fork is at the exact frequency that the sun is at. It's tuned to the frequency of the sun. Hmm. I've had people in situations where I was doing healings on them in ceremonies, and I came and I hit the tuning fork, and I held it over and held it to their heart, and I saw some significant changes and healings because wow. I was putting that vibration, tuning them to that, so to speak. Wow, bro! Yeah, Jesus! Like, well, actually, I, I've
0: been listening to this one. Uh, I guess they call the they're a band. Technically, they're called Phi Phi Tribe. Oh. And um, they the oh, their music is free on YouTube if you go to Fight Tribe. They have over a hundred thousand uh, subscribers, and the music is tuned to four hundred and thirty-two Hertz. And there you go. it's it's that's it's it. healing music. So the they have like these eight hour long recordings that you can play while you sleep. Yeah. and um you have there's like these eight hour recordings that you play during the day so anxiety relief ptsd relief you know like for for your baby sleeping and it's it's quite amazing like i play it there and my kid as soon as i play it she's at like a year and a half this 20 months stage and it's like everything is magical and I play the music and it's just very like just like you know just uh Sounds like very kind of gentle sounds, and she'll just start sometimes. She'll be like, Laaaa. You know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just like, just really loving it, sort of thing. Um, hard to describe, but um, you just the the energy in the in the room in the living room is quite different when we play that music, right? So, yeah, yeah dude, like I know we, t- we talked about it uh, on the first or the second time I interviewed you about you know your sound healing and um, you know. Y- and I've listened to you talk about it a lot, and yeah, definitely like free. Even Tesla was talking about uh, frequency, vibration, and what was the third thing he was talking about. So these things have, you know, a tremendous impact on physiology, psychology, the the morphic field around us. Even, dude, watching my dog when I when I play this music, like I play mm. it in the background, my dog, dude. I don't know am I am I seeing what I want to see, but like. This I see in her, she's just there with her eyes closed, lying down so peacefully. I can see this mm-hmm. peace and serenity in my dog's demeanor when I play this music, man. I
1: love it. Is, it, is that PHI Tribe? Yeah, stuff like yeah, that? yeah, yeah. Five I'm going to look it up. Check I, it out. Yeah. yeah I, I've had a similar experience in that um, you may know this, and I don't remember what I said to who at what interview and blah, blah, yeah. blah. If I'm re- being redundant, humor me. <laughs> but I'm a I'm a percussionist and a vocalist, yeah. Which I do in ceremonies, and I play a handpan. You familiar with handpans, dude? I, I've I've, listened, I've watched you play it
0: on YouTube. There's one okay. video of you, dude. It's amazing how you play that thing. Yeah,
1: thank you. So, I had that, and I started playing at different events with people. You know, just family gatherings and all that. No medicines, just yeah. I was at a family gathering not long after I first got it. And um, we're at a a relative's house and there were kids screaming and jumping in the pool and dogs running and people sitting and yakking and blah, blah, blah. I mean, just all this family chaos, right? And I just sat down in the middle of it and I started playing. And everybody, including the animals, stopped. (laughs) And they were all just, they were like they were in a trance. (laughs) And and they were all um, just like Gaga, like <laughs> totally focused on it. It's amazing, bro. Yeah, and then and then I've done it in other situations. My uh, one of my old friends was. He said he was really stressed out, and what I played for him, and I and I played for him and his wife, and, and then they were like thanking me later, like God, I was so stressed out, and what you did just totally relaxed me. And and it all has to do with the, the sound and the energy of the vibration. Yeah. So it's a powerful thing. It's a powerful thing.
0: What I've started doing in the evening time is uh, when my kid starts getting cranky and tired, and I'm mm-hmm. you know like putting her pajamas on, changing the diaper, getting her ready for sleep. There's a big resistance for kids. It's like it's like uh, when you say okay, it's bedtime. It's like no, 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 <laughs> no, no. Starts running around erratically, you know. So right. I just grab grab her, and then I just like it doesn't even matter what I'm humming or singing. I say. Da, 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 da. as long as like something is emanating out of my throat my chest some vibrations mm-hmm. and uh, like uh, i'll put her in on the changing table like just say just the stupidest shit dude like la 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 going oh, yeah. to bed and she just like calms down dude mm-hmm. and like next thing it's like i'm enjoying it so much i don't want to now, I don't want to put her to bed. She's no longer uh-huh. cranky. I feel like we can hang out there for another five, 10 minutes. So it's, it's, do, vibe, everything, it's like the Kibali, and I've, I've kind of been rereading that recently. You know, everything is um vibration. Mm-hmm. And like you were, it's like, and you already mentioned it already, like uh, things are not necessarily opposites, they're degrees of the same thing. So, you know, if you're in a crappy mood, you are literally on just on one side of 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 the the spectrum so yeah. you are you're just like a, a small little tweak in your energetic state to to bring yourself from like a crappy mood to a almost like a, a, a an elated mood, if so you wish like for example earlier today dude i i don't know why it happened but i was going through your website just to catch up on your latest work and i started reading about um, one of uh, the descriptions of one of your books uh, one of the non books I forget what, which one it was now and I was just reading this and dude I just started getting goosebumps and it happened like it happened at least once or maybe twice more I was just I was reading like the synopsis of a story for one of your books mm-hmm. and I was just like almost like getting drawn and I was dude I was getting goosebumps and it's just like how quick and easy it is to for your energetic state to be
1: transformed, isn't it? Yeah. First off, you just made my day. You just made my <laughs> life, so thank you for that. But here's the thing, and this is true, um, even with people with PTSD and trauma, uh, maybe a little more, more so, I think, maybe with domestic trauma, mm. domestic abuse and all that, people get addicted to that feeling. Mm. And women, the most uh, abused women, and I've worked with a number of them, in their mind, it gets confused with love because it's all they've ever known. And they get that attention. And and even though it's messed up and chaotic and ugly and hurtful, and even sometimes physically, they're addicted to that because they think that, that, that they're getting attention and they get confused thinking that that is love. But it's not. So one of the things I'm constantly reminding myself and I'm getting better at it is I'll be in a situation and suddenly I'm in a bad mood or so and then I stop myself I like, go oh, wait a minute. This energy doesn't feel right. It's not right. And then I can shift myself and get myself out of it. Mm. Sometimes it's a battle. It also tends to mug you because it's a it's a survival reaction. Mm. Um that gets to your deeper core. You're, it's instinctual. And so it doesn't really follow logic. It follows emotion. But I said, oh, man, I'm, I'm feeling like, I'm just feeling like shit. Where and what is this energy all about? This isn't what I want to feel.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and, and in a few times when I normally in, in the past might have popped off on somebody, I've learned to just shut up and keep my mouth shut. And sometimes it might take a day or two before yeah. I figured it out. But the point of it is, is that I recognize that unhappy, non-harmonious energy. And then I know something isn't right. And then I have to go down and follow it down, so to speak,
0: yeah, to yeah. find
1: out where it's coming from. And the same thing happens, by the way. I've done I've done tons and tons of dream work. So and can... when you wake up from a, a dream and you're trying to figure it out, yeah, what you really need to do is um, – dial into the emotion that you're feeling and then find out where that comes from.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And if you can follow it back into your past and much of this does go back to the womb, to the initial abandonment. Mm. But when you, when you recognize it and you follow it and you shut up and give yourself time, you'll figure it out. And then you can make the changes in the ships and realize I don't want that energy anymore, even though you've had it all of your life. And there's a whole instinctual survival aspect to it. That's on autopilot because you're, Sub-personalities um, are, are all trying to protect you. So I have this little thing in my head when they start acting up. And it'll and they'll go off for all these different weird little triggers. And I'll say, you, shut up and get in the corner. I'm not <laughs> listening to you anymore. I do it in a loving way. Yeah. But I'm very firm about it. I'm not listening to your shit. You get in the corner and shut up. <laughs> You're out of line. Yeah, and yeah. then I shift it. <laughs> And so the more you do that and the more you grow in awareness and the more you become aware of how that energy makes you feel, then you can dial in on it and you start to reprogram yourself and you realize that it comes from an abandonment wound for whatever reason and whatever different aspect it is that, that sets you off that way. One of the examples I love to use is you could be two years old and have this wonderful artistic impulse and grab your crayons and cover the whole wall with your crayons, right? And your parents come out and you messed up the wall. And, you know, you get a spanking or grounded or put it, you get punished for this artistic expression because you didn't yeah. know any better. Yeah,
0: yeah,
1: You could go the rest of your life and never have that artistic expression because it's been stifled going back to that traumatic moment because you didn't know any better. Mm. Right? So yeah. when you learn to overcome those things, you get better. And then you realize, okay, it was an artistic expression. I didn't know any better. I was two. And you forgive yourself when you let it go and then you move on and maybe you'll become a great artist.
0: Yeah. yeah. uh, I love that. It's so true. And, you know, I have, um, I have a memory from when I was maybe first or second grade, like seven or eight years old. And the teacher, the art teacher, she was pretty nice young lady. She was kind of cool. And she would, um, you know, give us tasks to do. So, draw a house so i remember i drew this house and every kid would draw the same stupid house you know um the 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 one square for the house triangle for the roof two sort of rectangles for the two windows might decorate them a bit and one bigger rectangle for the door and i remember Mm -hmm. i I, so i did that done and i had a bit of a knack for drawing and stuff as a kid and um i was bored I was bored like minutes and minutes passing by you know that's an eternity for a kid so Mm -hmm. the other kids are still like doing it and she's helping them draw lines and shit so I'm like okay what to do here what to do here so I drew a, a third bigger window in the middle of the two windows and she came around and she started criticizing that like, have you ever seen a? She's like, hey, to a seven, eight-year-old, have you ever seen a house that has a third window there? And I'm like, shit, like this. I'm like, mm. hey, if 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 I could go back, it's like, you get back in the corner. You. Yeah, am <laughs> Expressing right. myself artistically here. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, and I I remember then. Uh, several years later, we were in South Africa, and we had another art teacher who was much more, I suppose, um. Uh, she was teaching us very different kinds of uh, 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 styles, you know, collages, pencil drawing, pen drawings, um, uh, impasto. She was teaching us, it was, this was maybe ninth or 10th grade. And um, I remember I would always put off projects to the last moment. So we had to do this collage for magazine cuttings. And I did like a boat in the sea. It's like three or four pictures I cut out of some um, magazines, you know. And she said, Wow, I really like your style. That's called minimalism. You know, so she framed it. All oh, the other kids were like plastering like three dozen, four dozen pictures on there. on the thing. It was like this, you know, giant, beautiful mess. And I had like the laziest two, three, four uh bits and pieces. She's like, but the way it's it's all about like these early impressions you get. So this person, she we never nobody really liked that teacher. She was very strict, but she was a good teacher in that she she frames your artistic expression in a positive way you're a, mm-hmm. so you're a minimalist you know? yeah <laughs> so, it's beautiful so it's beautiful bro and there's uh there's a lot of tools we can we can use to go back and you know revisit these things you know so we can use psychedelics of course you know I, I talked about EFT or emotional freedom technique or tapping um there's internal mm-hmm. family systems there's a number of sort of psychological or exposure therapies what other ways do you think we can kind of you know bring up the aspects of our shadow and start working with it do you think meditation is one of those any other ideas
1: yeah meditation is very helpful i've been meditating for gosh probably over 40 years in the beginning for a number of years i did it every single day religiously every morning now i do it when it feels right um mm-hmm. i've done so much work with the plant medicines and all that that it's not Um, it's a good practice and it gives you good habits that help you. Even when I've been in altered states, in visionary states where things are nuts and get out of control, I can put myself into a meditative mindset to calm down the monkey mind Mm -hmm. and get some clarity because it's not jumping all around. And all that stuff is the different aspects trying to, to, um, get your attention. I had an interesting experience. I was down in the jungle back in October. And I was in a very dark place, and I was just in in the dark. And in my head, a mile a minute, oh, no, my stomach hurts. No, no, I I got a headache. No, I I think I got to go to the bathroom. No, I'm going to vomit. Oh, no, 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 this is that. Oh, that person. And then suddenly, like out of nowhere, this voice in my head just went, there is nothing wrong. And (laughs) it all stopped. Wow. And it was all this drama, like I was all anticipating, you know, what's going to happen now or what happened then. But blah, blah. it was all had no relevance whatsoever. And that voice came in just totally, and just and it all it was it was like the voice I was telling you a little while ago about, like you shut up and go to your room, right? It was it was mm. like that. but It was like, oh, you go to your room, right? <laughs> and it came like it seemingly out of nowhere, mm. and push suddenly calm, and I was like, wow, nothing's <laughs> wrong, isn't that amazing? Jeez, I'm I'm being a drama queen here. I'm trying to find something and make up something to be wrong because I'm so used to having something wrong. But there's nothing yeah. wrong, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And and it was really um, a beautiful thing. The other thing that's um, challenging but can be very very rewarding I touched on a little while ago, which is in dreaming. When you, um, so you know, during your normal everyday life, your left brain is more or less in charge, you got to function, you got to drive your car, you got to do your job, you got to go to work, you got to, you know, you do your banking, do your math, all those things. And your right brain gets denied for the most part, less so in women. Mm -hmm. Generally, these are all generalizations. Less so in women because they're more in touch with their intuition and their feelings than men, generally speaking. So, um, the right brain just gets shut off. And if you're a super uber masculine dude, um, you ignore it. You know, you lose out. So um, you go to sleep at night. And at some point, your left brain takes a rest. And your right brain comes out to play. And when your right brain comes out to play, it's a different language. It's visual, conceptual, emotional. It's not logical. But it's visual, conceptual, emotional. And it's a very complex, almost alien language where your shadow and your subconscious is coming out and letting you know what's kind of really going on in there. And, of course, it comes out in the bizarrest of dreams, Mm -hmm. often. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you wake up. And then the first thing that happens is your intellectual mind is trying to figure out what the hell was that, right? And then you go back and you have to almost remember the dream in reverse almost like that in order to figure out what the hell it was even just to remember it
0: yeah yeah.
1: and then you got to try to figure out what does it all mean which ties into what i was saying about if this emotion makes you feel a particular way and when you're in a dream and you have all these bizarre visualizations or whatever and you follow that emotion you'll find out where it comes from so so you can do that in your dreams And uh, it's another very effective way of um, inner search to figure out what's going on with your subconscious and and resolve it and accept it.
0: For example, if it's a a dream that gave you a feeling of fear or danger, how would would one go about interpreting that? I love it.
1: So two things. Um, When you're in a dream and you're getting chased and there's fear, If you can muster up enough awareness in that state of consciousness, turn around and face what's chasing you and say, what do you want? Makes all the difference in the world.
0: Mm.
1: I've had horrendous monsters coming after me. And then I turn around and say, in the dream, you know, what do you want? And suddenly they become my best friend and they're helping me. Wow. So I think that the, the 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 pieces that are chasing you are those aspects of your shadow that are really looking for attention that have been denied the most. So you need to pay attention to those, and you need to uh, accept them and then integrate them into it. So that complex language and all that is really challenging to interpret. Now, an interesting thing happens. You go to sleep, your left brain takes a rest, your right brain comes out to play. You wake up and you try to make sense of it. That's an an, an, uh, an integration of that dream. Well, what happens with ayahuasca is your left brain doesn't go to sleep and then your right brain gets turned on
0: mm.
1: and the left <laughs> brain never goes to sleep. So then you're trying to figure out if you try to figure it out too much, if uh, I've seen the worst situations with people who I call intellectually centered who drank ayahuasca. And when you're intellectually centered, you're used to using your mind and all that to control your life and things. And that doesn't work anymore. I had a, uh, a renowned PhD come to the jungle, real brainiac. And he spent his first three ceremonies curled up in my lap in the fetal position because he didn't know how to act. He didn't know how to deal with anything. It was unprecedented for him. It was a new thing like that, right? Well, wow, wow. he, he didn't know what to do. And he was totally freaked out because all of his intellectual strategies that he used throughout his life didn't work anymore. <laughs> so it, it gets back to what I said um, a while ago. In many respects, the time between the experiences are more important than the experiences themselves, because that's You go through these very intense experiences under ayahuasca. And then when you come back down and your mind, your intellectual mind now is trying to put together the pieces of everything that happened. That's what real integration is about. And that can go on for weeks or months or, um, you know, years. Um, And there are different levels of that. You know, there's an integration of one ayahuasca ceremony. There's an integration when you do three of them in a row. There's an integration when you do a 10-day shamanic plant diet where you do six or seven over that period. So there's the one-ceremony integration. There's the three-ceremony integration. There's the 10-day integration. And then I found as time has gone on, even the years have an overall arc of integration. So I can be in a vision or a ceremony when integrating, and I suddenly realize, oh, that's what that meant three years ago when I was in that other ceremony, you know, like that. And it continues and it begins to take on a, a, you know, a life of its own, which is the best thing of all. And all of that is directed toward getting toward that I, that Guruji talked about.
0: Mm. And Are are you still leading ceremonies
1: now? Yes. I'm actually, I'm leading, I'm co-leading the original group that I've been with for 24 years. And then I was asked and asked, and I finally gave in. I have my own group also. So, yeah, um, the original group we meet twice a year, uh, spring and fall, three ceremonies in a row each time. And then the other group that is now my group, I'm doing four times a year and three ceremonies um, each time in a row. Wow. So what's that? You mean Two, one, uh, one,
0: one, one one every day for 3 days, yeah?
1: 3 days, yeah. We do yeah. We'll, we'll do it around the weekends. We'll do we'll do Thursday night, Friday night and Saturday night. And then after each ceremony we do an integration the following morning. And then the one on Sunday morning after the last ceremony um is a bit more extensive because anybody who's done all three ceremonies usually has a little bit more to integrate.
0: Yeah.
1: Um to figure out and make sense out of it. Sure, sure. So wow. uh, the integration is really important. And I always tell people when they leave stay away from the news. Don't watch the news. Mm. Stay away from toxic people. Stay away from um, as much as you can and, and as long as you can uh, spend as much time in nature because that's healing. You know, the whole Japanese thing now they call it forest bathing. Yes. There's a lot to be said for that. And of course, when you go into the jungle and you do ayahuasca, you're not just forest bathing. You're, (laughs) you're getting submerged. You know, I like to say it's a, it's a, it's a tour of the jungle from the inside out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Bro. Yeah. For sure. For sure.
1: Uh, A couple more questions
0: for you, bro. So now I, I, I recently started doing a, a question. I ask everybody for my solutions talk segment that will start getting published at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, so basically the question is, what are you doing that others can do also to increase their freedom, self-reliance, autonomy, and or resilience to the challenges that we face this decade and beyond?
1: So I'm being redundant here on purpose, but the path is one of awareness. So I've done things in the past unconsciously following the subpersonalities because I didn't know any better and it felt good. And sometimes when you're when you're self-righteous, you feel so right. And of course more often than not you're so wrong. So it has to do really with paying attention. And when you go through and then people say to me, Oh, you know, you did ayahuasca and you took drugs and this and that and you altered yourself and then I'll say to them, depending on who they are, but I might say to them, Did you have any coffee this morning? Yeah, I have my coffee to wake up. Guess what? It's an altered state. And I tell younger people, you know, a lot of people when they younger and they get into the psychedelics and they're going, trying everything in the world. And I'm the last person to to point fingers because that's what I did when I was younger. Yeah. But when I was doing it, there was no guidance like there is now. Mm -hmm. There was no such thing as microdosing. There were really not many precedents um, to set out, you know. So... Um, bringing it in all together and paying attention, I tell the younger people that you've been doing so much stuff now that you should really try, stop doing everything for a while because you've been doing so many things that going to baseline consciousness is actually going to become an altered state for you Mm. because you're so used to being high all the time. So why Mm. don't you try that for a bit? You know, in in my case, when I was younger, uh, in my very early 20s, First, I was a vegetarian for 23 years. And then um, I went 13 years without doing anything. I wouldn't drink any coffee. I wouldn't take an aspirin if I had a headache. I went. I was totally vegetarian, and I went purely baseline for all that time. Then I was exposed to Terrence McKenna. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar with Terrence McKenna or not. Of course, yeah course. Yeah, well, we were, we were friends. I, I got to know Terence pretty good. Mm. But when I read his best work, in my humble opinion, it was Food of the Gods. I have that book, yeah. Oh, that, that to me was his best. And um, when, when you go in that way, and I got the whole idea, you mean to tell me that there's a connection between psychedelics and spirituality? Are you kidding mm. me? So when I read that after the 13-year break at the time, which was like in the like 1995, um, I spent a bunch of money and I bought all the stuff. I spent a thousand bucks and I started growing my own mushrooms. Nice. <laughs> and I didn't tell anybody. And I went back into altered states with the idea of spirituality as opposed to what's going to mess me up. I want to get high on this. I want to get, you know, like you'd said earlier, I was just trying everything because I wanted to get high see what it was like. But that was it for the experience. This way, when I saw psychedelics and spirituality, and then I realized all these ancient cultures had psychedelics at their core, you know, the Mayans and a lot of all over the world. Um, That was a huge revelation to me. And when I started taking the mushrooms with the intention of spirituality and self-exploration and self-improvement, it was life-changing. And it ultimately led me to ayahuasca. But again, um, it's not for everybody. I'm what's considered a hard head. I can take big doses. And, you know, I, I've been like high on pretty big doses and I forget about everybody else and they're all like losing their minds. And, and then I have to like, I got to recalibrate myself and go, oh, wait a minute, they're having a hard time. I, I, I better slow down and watch out for them and, you know, Not be flying off like I like to do, you know, until the time is right. So there is that. But uh, once again, and I know I'm being redundant on purpose, but psychedelics are a wonderful tool when used with the right intention in order to grow. But they're not necessary and they're not for everybody. And a number of people who have come to me to do ceremonies, I screen everybody thoroughly. And I turn away a lot of people. And I've shut down a number of people and they actually thanked me for turning them away. Mm. So it's it's not an easy path, but um, altered states is a big part of shamanism. Yeah. And um, you can find a number of altered states without doing anything. So um, everybody's different. Yeah. It, you know? And what's your
0: take on cannabis in terms of its medicinal qualities?
1: That's a funny subject for me. I have a lifelong love affair with it. Mm. um, Going all the way back over 50 years. And when I do ayahuasca, I stop. But I'm a victim of what they call writer's crack. And on a good day of writing, I get up in the morning, I have my coffee, and I write for a while. And then I usually make myself wait till 4.20. Now, as the day has gone on, the caffeine's kind of wearing off and you keep drinking it, but it doesn't do anything. You get kind of brittle and edgy. But for me, I wait till 4.20 and I take a couple of hits and I get a whole second stage of creativity. And I'll get like another three, three and a half pages that day that I I wouldn't have gotten. So coffee in the morning, cannabis in the afternoon, and when I'm when I'm writing a book, I'm 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 sort of possessed by that book. It owns me. It has its own life, yeah. and I'm just I go, I go, I go, I go, and that's how yeah. I get things done. But um when I'm getting ready to lead ceremonies, when I'm getting ready to do ayahuasca, I stop both of them. I have self discipline and I'll stop doing both of them. So that I go into the ayahuasca without being under the influence of anything at all.
0: Sure. You don't it's want, awful... uh, you don't want the, the feminine energy of the cannabis to interfere with the feminine
1: energy of the ayahuasca, right? Well said, brother. Um, you know, in the jungle, they, they sort of say, you know, ayahuasca is the dark feminine. And they consider it to be the mother of all the other plants. So basically, ayahuasca saying, get out of here, you little bitch. This is my territory. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. I want you to come here clean. I don't want you cheating on me with all that stuff. And that's mm. the tradition that I work in. There are other traditions that use cannabis with it. Yeah. But um, the tradition I work in doesn't. And I experimented with it. And I agree. Don't take anything else. Mm-hmm. It's just like I had somebody tell me, oh, um, you're, you're going to lead an ayahuasca ceremony and then you were going to do mushrooms after that and five MEO <laughs> and combo. And I'm like, stop, that's- <laughs> no, just ayahuasca. If that's not good enough for you, you need your head examined because that's intelligent. And people who do that, I I, I call them rookies. They don't know what they're doing. Yeah. And I'm kind of a strict traditionalist. I stick with mm-hmm. the original ways. And if you're going in and um, the ayahuasca is so powerful. Why do you want to do anything else? Yeah. And why do you want to have to go do 5-MeO or combo or something else after you do the ayahuasca? You, to me, you're screwing with the integration.
0: Yeah.
1: Let that sit in. If you want to do those things, do them as a, as a, a separate thing if you feel the need to do them. Mm-hmm. But um, I just think it's really bad to do in conjunction with it. Yeah. Now, when I go to the jungle and I do the plant diets, it's ayahuasca and then a number of other plants. You know, you get a picture every day of a plant or different plants. And I've worked with most of the plants that they have, if not all of them now. And they are all synergistic and related to ayahuasca. And their energies are conducive to it. So right. in that way, in that tradition, it's it's workable. Because it's what they've done, you know, since literally since prehistoric times. So By the way...
0: I I from Holland. I I ordered some uh, shushuasi and uh, yeah. bobinsana and stuff like that. Oh yeah! And bro, I, I was making teas and stuff like that, but I made some tinctures, right? And the bobinsana tincture before bed, the most incredible dreams, Amen. the most vivid dreams. Uh, in fact, it's gonna make me want to take some tonight before bed. I still have some some tincture, Very
1: interesting plants. So, for what it's worth, I had the most profound experience of my entire life with Bobinsana. Mm. This is in my memoir, Spirit Matters. and I'll But I'll give a brief overview without trying to give the whole way a thing. Hopefully, everybody will run out and buy my books and buy them for everybody they know and blah, blah, <laughs> blah, blah. But my first plant diet was with Bobinsana. Mm. And Bobinsana grows by the banks of the river. And the roots go deep down into the earth, and the the, the branches and, and leaves and stuff, and flowers go up to the sky. And they say that it connects heaven and earth. Wow. So I had the most lucid dream I ever had in my entire life, working with Bobinsana. Mm. And I woke up in the dream, and I was lucid. And I said, okay. Don't take over the dream. Don't try to fly. Don't try to breathe underwater. Yeah. Just stay lucid and see what unfolds. And I had all these experiences. I'm giving away the end of my book, by the way. But I had all these experiences with Teresa. Mm-hmm. I had a friend, Teresa. There was Teresa this. There was Teresa that. There were beautiful women. There was Teresa was everything. And I started asking people, "What's well, Teresa?" And somebody mentioned Santa Teresa de Avila, who is considered like the patron saint of like epileptics and sort of visionary things. Mm-hmm. I had this profound experience of Santa Teresa, so I was—I knew who she was. So I was asking around, and some people started telling me that that night. I went into an ayahuasca ceremony and I was in rapture with Santa Teresa for about four hours. Wow. I didn't know Spanish at the time. She was communicating with me in Spanish sort of telepathically and I understood everything she was saying and I didn't know Spanish and I had the most profound experience and I even started, I was so in love that I even started having like erotic feelings. And I got, got all embarrassed by that. And she's like, stop. That's normal. Don't worry. It's okay. It's another mm. sort of expression in this way of, of, of love. Mm. So I was totally, absolutely blown away by that experience. Now, I got through the dieta. I had a deal. My mom's been gone about 19 years now. But I had to deal with my mom as soon as I come out of the jungle to call her. Because yeah, yeah. she was worried I might get kidnapped by the Shining Path or sure. you know eaten by a jaguar or, or all those things all so, those things yeah you know as soon as i got back to civilization in in the small jungle town i would call her so i called her and i said ma you are going to think i totally lost it i said i know you're going to think i went off the deep end but i got to tell you this experience i had and i told her everything like i just told you and she got very very quiet and i said ma you know, you okay? I know you're probably freaking out now that your son's really gone off the deep end. And she says, I've never told this before to anyone in my my entire life. But you know that I was raised Catholic. But you know that I never really bought into it. But when we were kids, your grandmother assigned us saints to pray to. Mm-hmm. And she assigned your Aunt uh, Audrey Um, she assigned her St. Joan, and she assigned me Santa Teresa de Avila. And even though I never bought into the whole Catholic thing, any time I've ever prayed, I prayed to Santa Teresa. Incredible. That did it for me. Incredible. That changed my life. That was a major turning point in my life. And as the years have gone on, I've realized that Santa Teresa, aside from being Santa Teresa, actually at that time was the face of the cosmic feminine for me. Wow. And I got in touch with my feminine, which was non-existent before that. I had no, I went 30 years of my life without crying. It just wasn't there. I was a tough guy. You know, yeah. it just wasn't there. No feeling. Yeah. And I got back in touch that way with my feminine. I went through a couple of years of the stupidest things which set me off, bawling my eyes out. You know, one time my mom called me, she said, happy birthday, honey. And it was so sweet. I just, I started bawling. And I'm like, <laughs> and she's like, Are you okay, honey? And I'm like, Rah. and she said, just you take your time and have a good cry. You know, <laughs> I must have gone on for 10 minutes.
0: Wow. And
1: then I finally leveled out. After that, some of the weirdest little things would set me off. Mm. And then after all of that, my intuition just went. <whistles> wow. And I started having intuition. So I, through all of that, I discovered my my lost feminine, which was suppressing my shadow because I grew up in a tough neighborhood and blah, 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 mm. all that stuff, you know, street fighting. Yeah, guys listening, um, get
0: Matteo's book, His uh, the first part of his memoir called Spirit Matters. Get that on Audible. It is riveting. It's <laughs> riveting, you. guys. I, I've actually listened to it multiple times, by the way. I don't remember. Oh, thank all you, all of, I don't actually remember all of the details. So when you when you when you told that story, I was like re-experiencing it. But I did back in twenty twenty. Um, I did listen to it multiple times, bro. It's a very very interesting, adventurous life you've had. It and un- almost it's almost unbelievable your life, you know. <laughs> so I'm told. Um, yeah. And and that's just the first part, you know. I I actually do have um. I do have a uh, pick a floor, but I have not yet had the chance to read it. I'm just gonna get the audiobook, or maybe I got the audiobook. I as well as to have it. Anyway, uh, guys, mm. start with Spirit Matters. It's really, really riveting. If you, if you, uh, if you vibe or jibe or whatever, vibrate with Mateo, you're gonna love it. You're gonna love Thank it. Thank you, uh, brother. So tell us uh, as we wrap up, bro. Tell us about your. You said two more books are in the pipeline. You
1: said, yeah. I'm finishing, I'm doing the audiobook. In fact, I've been up since about 4.30 this morning. Um, I have to narrate after 11.30 at night and before 6.30 in the morning because of the airport that's near here. Oh, shit. So um, I'm actually finishing up my third short story collection, which is called The Thinning Veil. Okay. So The Small Dark Room of the Soul was my first one. The second one was, was called A Short Walk to the Other Side. And the idea from both of those, the small dark room of the soul, actually had to do with the shadow, even though I wasn't fully conscious of it when I was writing it. And I have a quote, I'll probably mangle it, but, it, but it's, I think it goes something like this. Uh, Countless spiritual disciplines have urged us to seek the truth. Part of that truth lies within a small dark room, one we are afraid to enter. So all of the monsters were human. And it was ultimately about shadow. And I wasn't fully aware of it when I was writing it. So the second one, a short walk to the other side, has to do with the fact that you can just take a short step or something and totally change your life. You can have a momentary lapse of consciousness and you can have an accident and kill people. Or some people can lose their mind and end up killing somebody when they just get caught up in uh, crimes of passion, so to speak, and all of those things. So there's a small dark room where it's hidden, and then there was a short walk to the other side where it's just a a a blip where you can go off into the deep end. So I thought in this third one, the thinning veil, the boundaries between the worlds are really getting thinner and thinner. So I followed a similar theme, and um, I came up with thirteen twisted tales. Um, They're dark. they have to do with with humanity and the shadow and weird things. Uh, mm. Science fiction, science fiction horror. So <laughs> that one is almost done. And I'm in the final stages. I'm getting ready to narrate. The one that's going to come after that is called I Am Consciousness Incarnate. Wow. And it's a very in-depth analysis of uh, consciousness. Scientific theories, this theory, that theory. Uh, what do they believe? What was this study? How did they try to define it? There's mm-hmm. medical descriptions of consciousness. You know, there, 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 there's awesome. death, there's coma, all those things. So I really get very deep into what is what, what do we think consciousness is. Mm-hmm. And then as it goes more on toward the end, it gets into mindfulness and meditation and all of that. Wow. So uh, the short story collection is going to be out in August. And then I got a time. I don't want to bring them out too quick. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to wait a while before I finish up the second one and release it so there's time because it, it just gets to be a bit much.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, and that's um, going to make 20 publications at that point, right?
1: Make. Yeah, actually, 20? yeah. The the I Am Consciousness Incarnate will be my 20th,
0: Jesus. which is scary. Yes. Yeah. When, what year did you publish your first book?
1: So my first book was that small dark room of the soul and other stories. That was 1994.
0: Right. And so... it got,
1: it got mentioned in um, the year's best horror and fantasy and it would have got greater exposure, but it came out late when that came out. Mm-hmm. So she put it in there like under the honorable mention thing because it, it it was late under the wire. Right. Right. So that was the first one.
0: So, th- so 30 years, bro, you've been publishing.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I don't know where it all went. That is incredible. And they're writing themselves.
0: You know, I I kind of have a, I won't say a bucket list or anything like that, but I want to write five books total at least in my lifetime. So I've Uh written one three years ago. It's been more than three years now at this point. So if if I write four more, I think I'll be able to die happy. Sure. (laughs) I love it i think it's doable i think it's doable my money is on you you have you have a good background yeah i just um i just need to muster up the the courage you know to to dive into the next one i know what i want it to be about and it's a, it's going to be a short one so i could probably get it out in a year but mm-hmm. um it, you know how it is it's a big it's a big thing even if, for a small book you know how it is bro so i don't need to procrastination know. it's not it's not the procrastination it's it's more it's always like at least twice as big of a project than you thought it was uh-huh. yeah so i'm like can, can i do it should i do it
1: you know anyway well, it's all about process yeah and it's a cliche but it's the journey if you focus on the destination you'll kill yourself with with doubt and procrastination and all of that but if you just get into the rhythm of it, yeah, then it will write itself. I always tell my students puke on the page because that's what editing is for. Mm-hmm. You know, if you got the flow, don't worry about punctuation. Don't worry about any of that. Just let it come out, yeah. and then you can go back and you can edit and you can refine it and all that. And just um, for what it's worth, a little tip from Ray Bradbury: if you have a place that you write, like it looks looks like you got a nice office there.
0: Mm.
1: You have a place where you work and you show up every day roughly at the same time to write. Your body will click into the rhythm and it'll get, it'll start to flow. And when you're at the same place every time to do the same thing, it'll start moving and it'll start coming out. Mm. And then I play a gazillion games with myself. Like I'll finish a book or a chapter and I'll print it out. And then I'll say, okay, I'm going to go to a coffee shop to edit. So then I go to the coffee shop. It's like, okay, you came all the way here and you got a cup of coffee. So now you have to edit this. Oh, and by the way, you can't leave till you finish this chapter or two chapters, whatever. And then I, and then I, you know, I'll finish up and then I'll say, you know, okay, you finished two chapters or, you know, you want to smoke a, you want to smoke some weed. You can't smoke (laughs) it till you finish this next chapter you know, and I, and I constantly do that carrot and stick with myself and play games with myself and I get it done. Yeah. Love that bro. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, this is 35, 40 years I've been at it. So now it's second nature.
0: Absolutely. I I forgot who it was that said, I I can only write when inspiration strikes. Luckily it strikes every time at 8am, every day at 8am. I love it. When I sit at the computer or whatever. I forgot where that quote is from. I love it. Well, Bro, this was an absolute pleasure, as I anticipated. Um, Thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your insights. Uh, Please tell the folks about all the places they can can find you on the Internet.
1: Yeah. So uh, the first place, if they go to mattpalamary.com, M-A-T-T-P-A-L-L-A-M-A-R-Y.com, that's my web page. I have your podcast that I've done with you on there. Nice. And I have radio and TV and podcasts. I got a whole thing under media. So for people who really like to listen, um, there's tons there. And many of them are also um, on YouTube. Mm. They can also find my books all on mysticinkpublishing.com. M-Y-S-T-I-C-I-N-K-P-U-B-L-I-S-H-I-N-G.com. They're all there. Um, And then, of course, they're all on Amazon. They are all available as eBooks and tree books, mm-hmm. and right now I'm on my um, I'm, this one I'm doing right now will be my twelfth number twelve audiobooks. Wow. All the really you now I have science fiction, I have horror, I have I have a historical novel, I have memoirs, I have all these things, but um, all of the stuff that you and I have been discussing, all the spirituality stuff, for the most part. Those are my nonfiction books. Um, So they can find me all there. And if anybody goes to my webpage, there's a little contact thing. If they want to pop me a little message, it'll email me and I can communicate that way also. And um, I really uh, very much appreciate you having me back on the show. I love your questions. You and I have a real good, we have good resonance, brother.
0: Yes, brother. I I believe we do. And um, it's interesting uh, what you were talking about—inspiration or intuition—I literally, I, I, I can't even think. Uh, I, I didn't arrive logically. I didn't like arrive. You know, uh, at the the decision to email you. Just one, one. I think it was one morning. I was here at the computer. It's like, oh shit! I sh- I'm doing like I'm doing the podcast regularly again. Should email Mateo. It literally was like that. You know, so I emailed mm-hmm. you. It just popped out of nowhere, and it was the same story with like a few other people that. Um, I just, oh, I'm just going to email this person. It just literally comes out of nowhere almost.
1: So, Timing is everything.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we we'll look, so you said August is the next one, yeah?
1: Yeah, that'll be ha- out late August, uh, yeah. mid, mid to late August, yeah. yeah. I,
0: I, we might have you back on in the fall, talk about some other stuff. There's always stuff to talk about, bro.
1: You know how to find me? I love your, your, uh, show is one of my favorites. So track me down, hunt me down. Um, and then, uh, as my brother says, whip me, beat me, hurt me and make me write bad checks.
0: (laughs) Yeah, bro. Look at like, I, I feel like you have so many awesome stories to tell and like all of I know a lot of people listening, they're interested in plant medicine. So, I think they love all these so- sort of stories in the jungle and experiences and visions mm-hmm. because I think you said it before. It's like a lot of us, we, we through your experiences, we live that. So we learn mm-hmm. from that. Not all of us have the ability to go to Peru for, you know, multiple weeks or months at a time. So, you know, um, those who cannot do sometimes watch and learn, you know so
1: yeah people have people have told me numerous times thank you for going to the jungle for me
0: yeah
1: it's amazing and so I appreciate that and I and I appreciate you know before I wrote my memoir I'm like who cares what my life is like yeah and then I thought well no wait a minute not everybody has lived a life like I have not everybody has had the depth of the experience that I have been blessed to have so I, I, I appreciate you saying that they can they'll say to me well this or that I can't do that and I'll say to them that's okay I did it for you. Yeah. And I, I mean this in a good way, but
0: I, for one, don't want to live the life that you've had because, I mean, sure, yes, I I, I wish I could have some of these um, amazing experiences in the jungle, but a lot of, uh, uh, like from your memoir, a lot of your, you know, your especially your early life, there's mm-hmm. a lot of challenges. And, you know, not... Everybody is evolved enough to be able to handle those challenges, you know. And, and they say, you know, God gives the greatest challenges to his greatest warriors. Per se, you know. So I, I, I don't think I could handle all of that. Maybe I could. Maybe I don't know. But I, I, <laughs> all those challenges, bro. You know, everybody has their own challenges. But um, yeah, bro. You, you, you know, like again, guys, this the listen to Spirit Matters. You, you will understand what we're talking about. There's some crazy shit that happened to (laughs) Mateo yeah no well like I was just saying I did it for you bro you don't have to (laughs) Uh, All right, my man Um, thank you again for coming
1: on thank you thank you for having me Um, obviously I'll help you I'll post the heck out of it when it's ready to go